Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, will you join me in Psalm 27? We're going to spend two weeks in the Psalms before we hit our fall series. We just finished after the likeness of God, and now we're back in the Psalms this morning. But here's Psalm 27. It's a good Psalm this morning. We're excited for it. David, he writes this. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord that, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my heel, my, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody with the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You, you have said, seek my face. So, so my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. To turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. But I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Just says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Well, it was a cold and very winter night, and the odds were definitely stacked against them. If you were of the Swedish army during the, the Battle of Narva, fear had to be rain, running through your veins. After all, you were against the Russian army of, of Peter the Great, and, and all the conditions for war were not looking so good. See, the Russians, they had been camped for, for some weeks. You as a Swede, you, you had to travel across the Baltic Sea. On top of that, when you arrived, you, you had to travel through the mud on these, these roads that were washed out. And the only food you had was in your knapsack, and it was cold, blizzard-like conditions, rain during the day, snow during the night. So not only were you tired, but you were hungry and you were cold. And finally, when you made it to the battlefield, your eyes began to look up, and there on the other side of you was 40,000 different Russian troops to your 10,000. Yes, you were outnumbered four to one. So imagine you are as a troop and looking at this Russian army, I imagine that, that again fear had to be rising up. But what's so interesting though is these, these soldiers began to look to their left and their right. What they began to see was their king was with them. 
Yes, King Charles was, was right by their side. He was sleeping in the same conditions they were sleeping in. He was, he was walking through the same muddy conditions they were they're walking through. Their king was with them. And I imagine that fear began to dissolve as they begin to sing the chorus, Our King is with us, our King is with us, and because our King is with us, we have nothing to fear. But fear is kind of an interesting thing. It rises and it leaves and it rises again. And imagine for many of the soldiers, that's exactly what was taking place again. The, the fear began to rise up again as they were beginning to march out in battle. And then the blizzard kicked in and it became so strong that they could not see anything. M many of the Swedish army at this point said, we don't want to go into battle. The conditions are too bad. But the king asked them to go, so they went. And again, as the swords begin to be slicing through the air and cannons beginning to, to be fired towards them, I imagine fear begin to rise in their soul once again. But guess what? As they begin to march out in battle and the battle began to, 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 to begin, they look to their side again and there was King Charles right next to their side. True story, they begin to fight, and here King Charles began to arrive on horseback. He was covered in complete mud. He was missing even a boot, but he was determined not to leave his people behind. The Russian king, he was long gone by now, but not their king. And against all odds, the Swedes ended up winning that battle. And I cannot help but think in my own mind, it must have been the reality that their king was with them. Their king was with them. And because their king was with them, they had nothing to fear. You see, this morning David is writing his psalm and he wants us to understand that same chorus. That our king is with us. Our king is next to our side and because our king is with us, we have nothing to fear. But yet if you live in this life, you understand, sometimes we forget that reality. When the trials come knocking on our door, we begin to miss that chorus and forget the reality and the strength in that truth that our King is with us. And many times fear begins to creep up back into our own souls. In many ways, David is writing, you can almost see his fear begin to rise back up. The psalm is disjointed. So disjointed that many scholars cannot believe that the same person that wrote the first half of this psalm is the same person who wrote the second half. Because in verses 1 through 6, David exudes this God confidence. Verses 7 through 12, he seems more frantic in his nature. I want to suggest to you that there's more in common with these two sides than, than many of these scholars suggest, but, but even if that wasn't the case, if we just remind ourselves of the hu own human nature and our own hearts, we remind ourselves that, yes, our hearts sometimes are, are bipolar in nature. Sometimes, yes, we feel so courageous. And the first sign of a trial comes our way. What happens? You find ourselves running around like a chicken without their head. Many times we see so much God confidence and we feel so courageous, but again, the first trial comes up and we're paralyzed in fear. In fact, Friedrich, uh, Frederick Buchner begins to tell us this line and, it, and it's helpful. He says, show me the person 
that believes that God confidence is a one kind of act, one time act in which we just have confidence and we don't have to worry about it all again. He says, show me the person that believes that God confidence is one time of act like this, this spiritual plastic surgery that just takes over and all of a sudden we are courageous. He says, I'll show you a person who's either trying to pull the wool over their own eyes or trying to pull the wool over his eyes. He says, I, I want you to be a person who wakes up and asks the question, do I still believe in the same thing I did yesterday about the gospel? Better yet, he says, I need you to be a person who wakes up, opens up the New York Times, looks at all the sin and the chaos in this world, and then ask yourself that same question. Do you believe that what we're reading about in this Bible is true? He says, if you can do that 10 days out of 10 days with the assurance and great confidence, then you're probably not human. And what he's getting at, he's getting at this idea that, yes, we, 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 our hearts are so frantic. Many times, yes, we feel and we know these truths and we walk out in great courage, but other times... We have a memory lapse. We struggle. And we see it within the scriptures, do we not? Remember Peter? Peter is so courageous in this moment. He, he sees Jesus out on the, on, on the ocean, walking on water. And what does Peter say? He says, if it's you, Jesus, call me out upon the waters. And Peter goes courageous with great faith, thinking that, yes, he has conquered the world, that he believes his Jesus has the power to allow him to walk on water as well. But yet, that first wave hits him. The wind begins to blow, and all of a sudden, Peter's once courageous heart becomes frantic. The truths he once knew as true, he began to forget and is that not our hearts as well? So, so many times, yes, stepping out upon the water is courageous, but again, the first trial hits us and all of a sudden we find ourselves sinking frantic. So, so we shouldn't have a problem with, with the disjointed psalm. Again, I want to suggest to you that they're that these two sides have a lot more in common than what these scholars say, but even if they don't, we, we shouldn't be surprised that, yes, David in one second is, has this God confidence, but yet in the very next he seems more frantic. What, what should actually take us off guard is this reality that here David is in the darkest moments of his life, but his eyes are always fastened upon his Lord. No, no matter what takes place, Throughout this psalm, David never ceases from keeping his eyes upon his God. And yet, is this not the faith we want as well? That even in our darkest moments, that our eyes can keep, our, keep their focus on the power of who our God is, even in our darkest days. Because as you're looking at this psalm, we understand that, yes, this is a, a difficult time in David's life. Man, you just look at this psalm, verse 2 tells us that, that these evildoers were sailing against David. An army was a camp against them. Verse 5, David says, this, this is the day of trouble. Verse 6, the evildoers are once again encamped around him. Verse 10, he says, even his mother and his father has forsaken him. 
Verse 12, he uses this graphic language that these false teachers were, were, were violently spewing out these things, breathing out violence against him. To say this was a bad day for David is an understatement. He's in his darkest moments of his life. We're not really sure what exact circumstances are surrounding David, but many believe this was actually a time in David's life when Absalom was trying to kill him. Yes, Absalom, his own son, wanting his father's life, not only trying to steal the throne, but he wanted his own dad dead. Can you imagine David in this moment? I imagine he has some questions. His own son wanting to kill him. He's got some questions. God, where, where are you? Why are you allowing this circumstance to take place in our life, and yet is that not the definition of trials? There are times in our lives in which we have more questions than answers. You ever been there? And what do we do in these moments? What I love about this psalm, notice what David does. He begins to preach biblical truth back to himself. And that's the first half of this psalm, verses 1 through 6, is packed full with information about how powerful his God is. He's reminding himself in the midst of his darkness of who his God is and how powerful his God is to be. He's reminding himself that, yes, his king is with him, his God is with him, and therefore he has nothing to fear. In the midst of our darkest days, we must do the same. Because we're so prone to forget biblical truth in the midst of our questions. So many times in my own life, I sit there crying out, God, why would you ever allow this to take place in my life? And those moments in which I have more questions than answers, what do I need to do to myself? I need, I need to remind myself of who my God is. And this is exactly what David does. In fact, notice what he says in verses 1 through 2 with me. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is the anthem of David's life, that his God is with him. And because his God is with him, he has nothing to fear. And he begins to preach to himself qualities about his God to remind himself of how big his God is. Notice how he begins. He is my light. God is light. And amidst the amount of hope that's brought to him in this dark situation, that his God is light. Here he is in his darkest moments. He looks around. Everything else is dark around him, but he sees one light, and it's his God. And he fastens his eyes upon the light of who his God is. All the darkness begins to dissolve. You ever have a child in the middle of the night? Wake up frantic, scared, and with a flip of the switch, the light goes on and their fears disappear. See, sometimes we need to flip that switch. We need to remind ourselves of the power of who our God is because when we flip that switch and we get our eyes focused back on our God is light, the darkness, it begins to dissolve. But not only does he say our God is light, 
He says, our God is salvation. Or I love how the Septuagint says, he is our Savior. And is this not what we need in our darkest moments? A God who can save us? He's our Savior. In fact, these words remind me of Peter back in, again, in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, all the disciples or some of the disciples have kind of dispersed and, and left Jesus. In this moment, Jesus turns to his 12 and he asks, are, are you two going to, to leave? And what is Peter's answer? Where else are we going to turn? I mean, in you are the words of life, eternal life. Translation, you are our Savior. We have nowhere else to turn. Do you know that your God is your Savior? That you have nowhere else to turn but to Him because He's the only one who can handle your problem. In the illness, He's your great physician. In the midst of your financial problem, He's the one who owns cattle on a thousand hill. In the midst of your enemy, He's the Lion of Judah. He can handle your problem. He's the king of kings, the creator of all things. And you can see in the anthem too that your God is with you. Your God is with you. And because your God is with you, you have nothing, nothing to fear. In fact, he goes on not only saying that our God is, 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 is light and not only is he his savior, but he says next, my Lord is my stronghold. What a beautiful picture. He's my covering, my, my refuge, my safe place. In the midst of life storms, when the rain and, and the hail comes thundering upon us, we find refuge and safety in Him being our stronghold. I love what Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a mighty strong tower. The righteous run to Him and are safe. You see, our God not only is with us, but He he surrounds us and encircles us. So when the enemy comes, they don't have to fight us. They have to fight the Lion of Judah. It's his battle. So I don't have to fear. So, so, so what David is doing in these, these verses, he's preaching this anthem, my God is with me, my God is with me, because my God is with me, I have nothing, nothing to fear. In those moments of your life in which you're struggling, this is why the Psalms become so powerful. Because they remind us of the biblical truth that somehow we've forgotten in the midst of the trouble. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the power of who your God is to remind yourself that yes, you too have nothing to fear. But notice what he does next. David in the next verse, he in, next, in verse 4, he, he shares his passion with us, his passion for God. Listen to what he says. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing I'll seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He, he will lift me high upon his rock. And it's easy to catch David's passion in those verses, isn't it? I love how the NIV says, he says, there's, there's one thing I, I ask for from the Lord. There's only one thing I seek. What's the one thing that David is passionate about? What's the only thing he really desires? 
God Himself. God's presence. And notice how he desires God's presence. He, he wants to know God better. He wants to see his beauty. He wants to be and experience the presence of the Lord. Notice how that now affects his view of trials. It has a great impact upon him. In fact, this week we would have been watching the movie to remember the Titans. I love this movie. There's this great scene within it. The team is practicing. They're, they're out in the hot weather. But, but Coach Boone, played by Denzel Washington, he wants his team to understand their passion for football is going to trump their ability to handle pain. So he begins to ask them some questions. He says, what is pain? Their response, French bread. He, he says, what is fatigue? The response, army clothes. In essence, what they're saying is because we love the game of football so much, pain to us is like French bread. It's a good thing because we love football that much. And then he asks one more question. Will you ever quit? The response, we want some more. We want some more. We want some more. David in this passage is saying, I want more. I want more of God. I want more and more of God. I want to see His beauty. I want to experience His power. I want to see His glory. I want more of my God. And notice the impact upon his trials. He says he, he understands that trials and our opportunity to create greater dependence upon his God, for, for his God to show up and, and bring him sustaining power throughout that trial. He knows this trial is going to push him upon his God, so his view of trials is its French bread. He, like James, can say, consider it pure joy, my brethren, whenever you face trials of many kind. Why? Because they have the ability to get you closer to your God. So difficult to understand amidst the trials. So hard in these dark moments to understand that, yes, this is actually a gift to push us, to push us, to push us closer to our God. But this is where C.H. Spurgeon becomes so helpful. He says, I've learned to kiss the wave that crashes me upon the rock of ages. David's saying, I'm learning to kiss the wave that crashes me upon the rock of ages. He says, I want some more. I want to know God more. I want to experience Him more. And sometimes in those darkest moments, David understands that God's glory shows up in profound ways. He says, the trial is going to get me closer to my God. Then I can embrace this trial that my God can show up. In fact, notice what he says in verses 4 through 5. Uh, it, 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 in, in verses 5 through 6, rather, he, he begins to explain how this actually takes place. He says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon his rock. And then verse 6, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under a cover of his tent. Oh, rather, that's verse 5 again. He will lift me high upon a rock. And as you're looking at this, understanding what this, what this trouble affords him, again, it's an opportunity 
an opportunity to be able to rest in the shelter of his most high God. Then he says in verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody in the Lord. Notice what he's saying in these two verses. He's saying that this, this trial is an opportunity for me to be kept safe in the dwelling of the Lord. It affords me an opportunity to be kept, kept safe in the shelter of his sacred tent. In other words, trials affords him the opportunity to spend time in God's presence once again. And I know sometimes how backwards that sounds. That the trial actually affords me his presence. Because like we talked before, when trials come our way, we we immediately kind of equate that it must mean that God has abandoned us. Somehow God has left. He's left his throne or he's left us on our own. But notice what he's actually saying. He's saying the exact opposite. This trouble has actually given him opportunity to to rest in the presence and the safety of the most high tent. And in our times of doubt, when these troubles and trials come our way and we're doubting, is our God really here next to us? What do we need to do? We simply, again, preach the gospel back to ourselves. What do we see throughout the scriptures? We see this theme that God has gone through great lengths and a great cost to be with his people. We see from the very beginning, God loves his people. He's he's dwelling with Adam in the garden. Flash forward to Israel. What do we see him doing? He's, He's leading Israel in the presence of Israel, by a cloud of day and a fire of night, or by by, by this flash of fire through the night. He's not left his people, but he's with them. Then there's the tabernacle. Imagine the tabernacle as David has it under this tent. Every time David looks out his window and sees that tent, it's a reminder that his God is with him. The God that that defies time and space, has chosen to come down and dwell with his people and put himself in a tabernacle for the presence so that David would always know that his God has not left his side. So interesting is when we fast forward to the New Testament, what do we see? John chapter 1, and Jesus became flesh, and it said he dwelt among his people, he tabernacled, he, he placed his tent among his people. God loved us so much that he would confine himself to a human body to be with his people. And we know the rest of the story. That Jesus would die this violent death to ensure that we would always know that our God would be a God that dwells with his people. In fact, the end of Revelation chapter 21, listen to the words. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them, and they will be their God. God's promise to His children has always been His presence, that He will never leave us nor forsake us, neither illness or sickness, or famine, or death can ever separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. So yes, we can sing that anthem with great courage that our God is with us. Our God is with us, and because our God is with us, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. 
In fact, we go to verse 6 and catch the victory in all of this. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifice with shouts of joy. And as you're reading that verse, you notice God's, or David's confidence in his God, right? The, the question is not if God will have victory. The question is when his God will have victory. And you might be saying, well, how does that even play out in our trials? Will God always have victory? What does that even look like? But this is where the Bible gets really good because it doesn't sugarcoat anything. It says this life is going to be hard. This life is going to be very difficult. Just look at Jesus' own life. God's own son struggled through darkness. Look at Paul. Paul was a man who experienced shipwreck, a man who was beaten on numerous occasions, thrown into prison, eventually would be martyred for his own faith. And you ask, where's the victory in all of this? Again, it comes through the perspective of what we desire and what we seek most in this life. And if it's God, Paul says a victory is assured. But Paul writes this from a, a Roman jail cell. Philippians, he begins to say this, from this prison cell, he says, as always... So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, glorified. In the midst of this prison cell, yes, God will have victory. Why? Because whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What Paul is saying is in this moment, if if I get released, yes, it will be praise and it will be victory because my God had the ability to to allow me to be released from this prison. But if, even if I remain and they beat me, that's okay because through my weakness, God's power is going to be perfected and seen as he sustains me through it all. Yes, a victory again. And even if they take my life and they martyr and kill me, there's still a victory because that is just an ushering me into God's presence. So no matter what happens in my life, there is always victory in Christ. When my God is with me, I have nothing to fear. Let that be the anthem of your life. Does it always come in our time? Not really. That's why we see at the end of the passage in verses 13 to 14, listen to what he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord, where catch it in the land of the living. Yes, I'll see his goodness even in this life as dark as it was for David, but yet he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes it's difficult in that wait. But the promise that even in our wait is this, that he has never left our side. So we, like David, can sing the anthem of our life. Our God is with us. The King of kings is with us, and because he is with us, we have nothing to fear. God, we are thankful. We're thankful for these reminders because, yes, we are so prone to forget them. God, let us see your power this morning. 
Let us be in awe of who you are, that you are the transcendent one, the holy one, the one who creates with simply a word. God, you are the one who is sovereign all of all of history. The God who has shown himself faithful time and time and time again. This morning, we want to be reminded of your faithfulness. God, would you show up in incredible ways? Lord, even as we begin to to start a new school year and our kids are going back to school or already started, God, would you be with our children? Would you surround them? Would uh, Would you allow their eyes to know that anthem as well, that you are with them, and because you're with them, they have nothing to fear? I pray for their teachers. I pray for mentors. I pray for friends that all these people in their life would point them to the goodness of who you are. Watch over our children. Let them see that whether they drink or whether they eat or whether they study, they can do so for the glory of the King. Pray for us as parents that we would understand that we're simply stewards of their life. That they're a gift entrusted to us to shepherd them and point them back to you. So God, give us the ability to do that and we send them back to school. Let them see that they're great missionaries in their place of of where you place them to show off your glory and your kingdom to all people. God, we're thankful for the Psalms in your word. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.